Before the Dawn, A Story of the Fall of Richmond by Joseph A. Altscheller Published by Doubleday, Page, and Company April 1903 Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 5, An Elusive Face Walking abroad at noontime next day, Prescott saw Helen Harley coming toward Capitol Square, stepping lightly through the snow, a type of youthful freshness and vigor. The red hood was again over her head, and a long dark cloak, the hem of it almost touching the snow fallen the night before, enclosed her figure. "'Good morning, Mr. Soldier,' she called cheerfully. I hope that your dissipations at the Mosaic Club have not retarded the recovery of your injured shoulder. Prescott smiled. I think not, he replied. In fact, I've almost forgotten that I have a shoulder. Now, I can guess where you're going, she said. Try and see. You are on your way to the Capitol to hear Mr. Redfield reply to that attack of Mr. Winthrop's, and I'm going there, too. So they walked together up the hill pausing a moment by the great Washington Monument and its surrounding groups of statuary where Mr. Davis had taken the oath of office two years before, and Mr. Sefton, who saw them from an upper window of that building, smiled sourly. The doors of the Capitol were wide open, as they always stood during the sessions of Congress, and Robert and Helen passed into the rotunda, pausing a moment by the Howden Washington, and then went up the steps to the second floor, where they entered the Senate chamber, now used by the Confederate House of Representatives. The tones of a loud and tireless voice reached them. Mr. Redfield was already on his feet. The honorable member from the Gulf Coast had risen on a question of personal privilege. Then he required the clerk of the House to read the offending editorial from Winthrop's newspaper, during which he stood haughtily erect, his feet rather wide apart, his arms folded indignantly across his breast, and a look of righteous wrath on his face. When the clerk finished, he spat plentifully in a spittoon at his feet, cleared his throat, and let loose the flood of rhetoric which was threatening already to burst over the dam. The blow aimed by that villainous writer, the honorable gentleman said, was struck at him. He was a member of the Committee on Military Affairs, and he must reply ere the foul stain was permitted to tarnish his name. He came from a sunny land where all the women were beautiful and all the men brave, and he would rather die a thousand deaths than permit any obscure ink-slinger to impeach his fair name. He carried the honor of his country in his heart. He would sooner die a thousand deaths than to permit... To permit. He paused and waved his hand as he sought for a metaphor sufficiently strong-winged. "'Wait a minute, Mr. Redfield, and I'll help you down,' dryly said a thin-faced member from the Valley of Virginia. The sound of subdued laughter arose, and the speaker rapped for order. Mr. Redfield glared at the irreverent member from the Valley of Virginia, then resumed his interrupted flight. Unfortunately for him, the spell was broken. Some of the members began to talk in low whispers, and others to read documents.' Besides the murmur of voices, there was a sound of scraping feet. But the honorable member from the sunny shores of the Gulf helped himself down, though somewhat angrily, and choosing a tamer course, began to come nearer to the point. 
He called for the suppression of the offending newspaper and the expulsion of its editor from the city. He spoke of Winthrop by name and denounced him. Robert saw Mr. Sefton appear upon the floor and once nod his head approvingly as Mr. Redfield spoke. The House now paid more heed, but the dry member from the Valley of Virginia, in reply to Mr. Redfield, called the attention of the members to the fact that they should not suppress newspapers. They might deny its representatives the privilege of the House, but they could go no further. He was opposed to spreading the thing to so great an extent as it would be sure to reach the North and would be a standing advertisement to the Yankees that the South was divided against itself. Then a motion was made to deny the privileges of the House to Winthrop or any representative of his paper, but it was defeated by a narrow margin. That, I think, said Robert, will be the end of this affair. I am glad of it, responded Helen, because I like Mr. Winthrop. And therefore, you believe everything he says is correct? Yes, why not? Women have more personal loyalty than men, said Robert, not replying directly. Shall we go now? he asked a moment later. I think we have heard all of interest. No, I must stay a little, she replied with some embarrassment. The fact is, I am waiting to see Mr. Sefton. To see Mr. Sefton? Prescott could not refrain from exclaiming in his surprise. She looked at him with an air, half defiance, half appeal. Yes, she said, and my business is of considerable importance to me. You don't think that a mere woman can have any business of weight with so influential a personage as Mr. Sefton. You southern men, with all your courtesy and chivalry, really undervalue us, and therefore you are not gallant at all. Her defiant look and manner told Prescott that she did not wish him to know the nature of her business, so he made a light answer, asking her if she were about to undertake the affairs of the government. He had no doubt some would be glad to get rid of them. He excused himself presently and strolled into the rotunda, where he gazed absently at the Washington statue and the Lafayette bust, although he saw neither. Conscious of a feeling of jealousy, he began to wish ill to the clever secretary. What business can she have with a man like Sefton, he said to himself. Passing out of the rotunda, he walked slowly down the steps, and looking back saw Helen and Mr. Sefton in close and earnest conversation. Then he went on faster, with increased ill-temper. "'I have a piece of news for you,' said Mrs. Prescott the next morning to her son at the breakfast table. He looked at her with inquiring interest. "'Helen Harley has gone to work,' she said. "'Gone to work? Mother, what do you mean?' The heiress of seven generations must work like a common northern mill-hand to support that pompous old father of hers, the heir of six Virginia generations, who certainly would not work under any circumstances to support his daughter. Won't you explain yourself more clearly, mother? It's this. The Harleys are ruined by the war. The colonel is absorbed in his career and spends all his salary on himself. The old gentleman doesn't know anything about his financial affairs and doesn't want to. It's beneath his dignity. Helen, who does know about them, is now earning the bread for her father and herself. Think of a southern girl of the oldest blood doing such a thing. It is very low and degrading, isn't it? She looked at him covertly. A sudden thought occurred to him. No, mother, he replied. It is not low and degrading. 
You think just the contrary, and so do I. Where has Helen gone to work? In the Treasury Department, under Mr. Sefton. She is copying documents there. Robert felt a sudden relief, and then alarm that she should owe so much to Sefton. I understand that Harley Sr. stormed and threatened for a while, continued his mother. He said no female member of his family had ever worked before, and he might have added, few male members either. He said his family would be disgraced forever by the introduction of such a low Yankee innovation. But Helen stood firm, and moreover, she was urged by the hand of necessity. I understand that she has quite a good place, and her salary is to be paid in gold. She will pass here every day at noon, coming home for her luncheon. Prescott spent most of the morning at home, the remainder with his new friends wandering about the city. But just before noon, he was in front of the custom house, waiting by the door through which Helen must come. She appeared promptly at the stroke of twelve, and seemed surprised to see him there. "'I came merely to tell you how much I admire your resolution,' he said. "'I think you are doing a noble thing.' The color in her cheeks deepened a little. He knew he had pleased her. "'It required no great amount of courage,' she replied, "'for the work is not hard, and Mr. Sefton is very kind. "'And, aside from the money, I am happier here. "'Did you never think how hard it was for women "'to sit with their hands folded, waiting for this war to end?' "'I have thought of it more than once,' he replied. "'Now I feel that I am part of the nation,' she continued, "'not a mere woman who does not count. "'I am working with the others for our success.' "'Her eyes sparkled like the eyes of one who has taken a tonic, "'and she looked about her defiantly, "'as if she would be ready with a fitting reply "'to anyone who might dare to criticize her.' "'Prescott liked best in her "'this quality of independence and self-reliance.' and perhaps her possession of it imparted to her that slight foreign air which he so often noticed. He thought the civilization of the South somewhat debilitating, so far as women were concerned. It wished to divide the population into just two classes, women of beautiful meekness and men of heroic courage. Helen had broken down an old convention, having made an attempt that few women of her class and period would have dared, and at a time, too, when she might have been fearful of the results. She was joyous, as if a burden had been lifted. Prescott rarely had seen her in such spirits. She, who was usually calm and grave, seemed to have forgotten the war. She laughed and jested, and saw good humor in everything. Prescott could not avoid catching the infection from the woman whom he most admired. The atmosphere, the very air, took on an unusual brilliancy. The brick walls and the shingled roofs glittered in the crisp, wintry sunshine. The schoolboys, caps over their ears and mittens on their fingers, played and shouted in the streets, just as if peace reigned, and the cannon were not rumbling onward over there, beyond the trees. "'Isn't this world beautiful at times?' said Helen. "'It is,' replied Robert, "'and it seems all the more strange to me that we should profane it by war.' But here comes Mrs. Markham. Let us see how she will greet you. Mrs. Markham was in a sort of basket cart drawn by an Accomac pony, one of those ugly but stout little horses which do much service in Virginia, and she was her own driver, her firm white wrists showing above her gloves as she held the reins. 
She checked her speed at the sight of Robert and Helen and stopped abreast of them. I was not deceiving you the other night, Captain Prescott, she said, after a cheerful good afternoon, when I told you that all my carriage horses had been confiscated. Ben Butler here, I call him Ben Butler because he is low-born and has no manners, arrived only last night, bought for me by my husband with a whole wheelbarrow full of Confederate bills. Is it not curious how we, who have such confidence in our government, will not trust its money? She flicked Ben Butler with her whip, and the pony reared and tried to bolt, but presently she reduced him to subjection. Did I not tell you he has no manners, she said? Oh, how I wish I had the real Ben Butler under my hand, too. I've heard what you've done, Helen, but tell me, is it really true? Have you actually gone to work, as a clerk, in an office, like a low-born northern woman? The color in Helen's cheeks deepened, and Robert saw the faintest quiver of her lower lip. It is true, she replied. I am a secretary in Mr. Sefton's office, and I get fifteen dollars a week. Confederate money? No, in gold. What do you do it for? For the money. I need it. Mrs. Markham flicked the pony's mane again, and once more he reared, but as before, the strong hand restrained him. What you are doing is right, Helen, she said. Though a southern woman, I find our southern conventions weigh heavily upon me. But, she added quizzically, of course you understand that we can't know you socially now. I understand, said Helen, and I don't ask it. Her lips were pressed together with an air of defiance, and there was a sparkle in her eyes. Mrs. Markham laughed long and joyously. Why, you little goose, she said, I believe you actually thought I was in earnest. Don't you know that we of the Mosaic Club and its circle represent the more advanced and liberal spirit of Richmond, if I do say it myself, and we shall stand by you to the utmost? I suspect that if you were barred, others would choose the same bars for themselves. Would they not, Captain Prescott? I certainly should consider myself included in the list, replied the young man sturdily, and doubtless you would have much company, resumed she. And now I must be going. Ben Butler is growing impatient. He is not accustomed to good society, and I must humor him, or he will make a scene. She spoke to the horse, and they dashed down the street. A remarkable woman, said Prescott. Yes, and just now I feel very grateful to her, said Helen. They met others, but not all were so frank and cordial as Mrs. Markham. There was a distinct chilliness in the manners of one, while the second had a patronizing air, which was equally offensive. Helen's high spirits were dashed a little, but Robert strove to raise them again. He saw only the humorous features of such a course on the part of those whom they had encountered, and he exerted himself to ridicule it with such good effect that she laughed again, and her happy mood was fully restored when she reached her own gate. The next was a festal day in Richmond, which, though always threatened by fire and steel, was not without its times of joyousness. The famous Kentucky Raider, General John H. Morgan, had come to town, and all that was best in the capital, both military and civil, would give him welcome and do him honor. The hum and bustle of a crowd rose early in the streets, and Prescott, with all the spirits of youth, eager to see and hear everything of moment, was already with his friends, Talbot, Raymond, and Winthrop. 
Richmond knows how to sing and dance, even if the Yankee army is drawing near. Who's afraid? said Winthrop. I have declined an honor, said Raymond. I might have gone in one of the carriages in the procession, but I would rather be here on the sidewalk with you. A man can never see much of a show if he is part of it. It was a winter's day, but Richmond was gay nevertheless. The heavens opened in fold on fold of golden sunshine, and a bird of winter, rising above the city, poured out a flood of song. The boys had a holiday, and they were shouting in the streets. Officers in their best uniforms rode by, and women, bringing treasured dresses of silk or satin from old chests, appeared now in gay and warm colors. The love of festivity, which the war itself could not crush, came forth, and these people, all of whom knew one another, began to laugh and jest, and to see the brighter side of life. "'Come toward the hotel,' said Talbot to his friends. "'Morgan and some of the great men of Kentucky, who are with him, have been there all night. That's where the procession starts.' Nothing loath, they followed him, and stayed about the hotel, talking with acquaintances and exchanging the news of the morning. Meanwhile, the brilliant day deepened, and at noon the time for the festivities to begin was at hand. The redoubtable cavalry leader, whose fame was rivaling that of Stuart and Wood, came forth from the hotel, his friends about him, and the grand procession through the streets was formed. First went the armory band, playing its most gallant tunes, and after that the city battalion in its brightest uniform. In the first carriage sat General Morgan and Mayor Joseph Mayo of Richmond, side by side, and behind them in carriages and on horseback rode a brilliant company, famous Confederate generals like Jeb Stuart, Edward Johnson, A.P. Hill, and others, Hawes, the so-called Confederate governor of Kentucky, and many more. Virginia was doing honor to Kentucky in the person of the latter's gallant son, John H. Morgan, and the crowd flamed into enthusiasm. Tumultuous applause arose. These were great men to the people. Their names were known in every household, and they resounded now, shouted by many voices in the crisp, wintry air. The carriages moved briskly along, the horses reared with their riders in brilliant uniforms, and their steel-shod hoofs struck sparks from the stones of the streets. Ahead of all, the band played dance music, and the brass of horn and trumpet flashed back to the golden gleam of the sun. The great dark-haired and dark-eyed cavalryman, the center and object of so much applause and enthusiasm, smiled with pleasure and bowed to right and left, like a Roman Caesar at his triumph. The joy and enthusiasm of the crowd increased, and the applause swelled into rumbling thunder. Richmond, so long depressed and gloomy, sprang up with a bound. Why cry when it was so much better to laugh? The flash of uniforms was in the eyes of all, and the note of triumphant music in every ear. What were the Yankees anyway but a leaderless horde? They could never triumph over men such as these, Morgan, Stuart, Wood, Harley, Hill, not to mention the peerless chief of them all, Lee, out there, always watching. The low thunder of a cannon came faintly from the north, but there were few who heard it. The enthusiasm of the crowd for Morgan spread to everybody, and mighty cheers were given in turn for all the generals and the mayor. The rebound was complete. The whole people, for the time being, looked forward to triumph, thorough and magnificent. 
The nearer the Yankees came to Richmond, the greater would be their defeat and rout. High spirits were contagious and ran through the crowd like a fire in a dry grass. Hurrah! cried Talbot, clapping his hand heavily upon Prescott's soldier. This is the spirit that wins. We'll drive the Yankees into the Potomac now. I've never heard that battles were won by shouting and the music of bands, replied Prescott dryly. How many of these people who are making so much noise have anything whatever to do with the war? That's your Puritan mind, old gloomy face, replied Talbot. Nothing was ever won by being too solemn. And we mustn't hold too cheaply the enthusiasm of a crowd, even a crowd that is influenced merely by the emotion of the moment, said Raymond. It is a force which, aimless in itself, may be controlled for good uses by others. Ha! Look at Harley. There. Well done! Helen's brother was riding an unusually spirited horse that reared and curvetted every time the band put forth an unusual effort. The colonel himself was in gorgeous attire, wearing a brand new uniform with much gold lace, very large epaulettes on his shoulders, and a splendid silken sash around his waist. A great cavalry saber hung at his side. He was a resplendent figure, and he drew much applause from the boys and the younger women. His eyes shone with pleasure, and he allowed his horse to curvet freely. A little girl, perhaps pressed too much by the unconscious crowd, or perhaps driven on by her own enthusiasm, fell directly in front of the rearing horse of Harley. It was too late for him to stop, and a cry of alarm rose from the crowd, who expected to see the iron-shod hoofs beat the child's body into the pavement. But Harley instantly struck his horse a mighty blow, and the animal sprang far over the child, leaving her untouched. The applause was thunderous, and Harley bowed and bowed, lifting his plumed hat again and again to the admiring multitude, while sitting his still-rearing horse with an ease and grace that was beyond criticism. The man's whole character was expressed in that act, said Raymond with conviction. Vain to the last degree, as fond of display and colors as a child, unconsciously selfish, but in the presence of physical danger, quick, resourceful, and as brave as Alexander. What queer mixtures we are! Mr. Harley was in one of the carriages of the procession, and his eyes glittered with pleasure and pride when he witnessed the act of his son. Moreover, in his parental capacity, he appropriated part of the credit and also took off his hat and bowed. The procession advanced along Main Street toward the south porch of the City Hall, where General Morgan was to be presented formally to the people, and the cheers never ceased for a moment. Talbot and the two editors talked continually about the scene before them, even the minds of the two professional critics becoming influenced by the unbounded enthusiasm. But Prescott paid only a vague attention, his mind having been drawn away by something else. The young captain saw in the throng a woman who seemed to him somewhat different from those around her. She was not cheering nor clapping her hands, merely floating with the stream. She was very tall and walked with a strong and graceful step, but was wrapped to her cheeks in a long brown cloak. Only a pair of wonderfully keen eyes, which once met the glance of his, rose above its folds. Her look rested on him a moment and held him with a kind of secret power. Then her eyes passed on. But it seemed to him that under a show of indifference she was examining everything with minute scrutiny. 
It was the lady of the brown cloak, his silent companion of the train, and Prescott burned with curiosity at this unexpected meeting. He watched her for some time, and he could make nothing of her. She spoke to no one, but kept her place among the people, unnoticed but noticing. He was recalled to himself presently by Talbot's demand to know why he stared so much at the crowd and not at the show himself. Then he turned his attention away from the woman to the procession, but he resolved not to lose sight of her entirely. At the south porch of the city hall, General Morgan was introduced with great ceremony to the inhabitants of the Confederate capital, who had long heard of his gallant deeds. After the cheering subsided, the general, a handsome man of thirty-six or seven, made a speech. The southern people dearly love a speech, and they gave him close attention, especially as he was sanguine, predicting great victories. Little he dreamed that his career was then close to its bloody end, and that the brilliant Stuart, standing so near, would be claimed even sooner, that Hill, over there, and others beside him, would never see the close of the war. There was no note of all this in the air now, and no note of it in Morgan's speech. Young blood and lively hope spoke in him, and the bubbling spirits of the crowd responded. Prescott and his comrades stood beside the porch, listening to the address and the cheers, and Prescott's attention was claimed again by the strange woman in the throng. She was standing directly in front of the speaker, though all but her face was hidden by those around her. He saw the same keen eyes under long lashes, studying the generals on the porch. "'I'm going to speak to that woman,' resolved Prescott. "'Boys,' he said to his comrades, "'I've just caught the eye of an old friend whom I haven't seen in a long time. Excuse me for a moment.' He edged his way cautiously through the throng until he stood beside the strange woman. She did not notice his coming, and presently he stumbled slightly against her. He recovered himself instantly, and was ready with an apology. "'I beg your pardon,' he said, "'but we have met before. I seem to remember you, Miss—' Miss—' The woman looked startled, then set her lips firmly. "'You are rude, sir,' she said. "'Is it the custom of southern gentlemen to accost ladies in this manner?' She gave her shoulders a haughty shrug, and turned her back upon him. Prescott flushed, but held his ground, and he would have spoken to her again had she given him the chance. But she began to move away, and he was afraid to follow deliberately, lest he make a scene. Instead, he went back to his friends. The general speech came to an end, and was followed by a rolling thunder of cheers. Then all the people of consequence were presented to him, and forth from the hustings courtroom, where they had been biding their time, walked twenty of the most beautiful young ladies of Richmond, in holiday attire of pink, rose, and lilac silk or satin, puffed and flounced, their hair adorned with pink and red roses from Richmond hothouses. It was really a wonderful bit of feminine coloring amid the crowd, and the southern people, ever proud of their women, cheered again. Helen was there. It was a holiday. In a wonderful old dress of rose-colored satin, her cheeks glowing and her eyes shining, and as Prescott saw her, he forgot the strange woman who had rebuffed him. The most beautiful girl of this score of beautiful girls is to present a wreath of roses to General Morgan. I wonder who it will be, said Raymond. 
He looked quizzically at Prescott. I wonder, repeated Prescott, but he felt no doubt whatever upon the subject. The cheering of the crowd ceased, and Helen, escorted by her brother, stepped from the unserried ranks of beauty to a table where the chaplet of roses lay. Then the general stood aside, and Helen, walking forward alone, made a little speech to General Morgan, in which she complimented him on his courage and brilliant achievements. She said that the sound of his voice would always strike terror in the north and kindle hope anew in the south. She was half afraid, half daring, but she spoke the words clearly. The big, black-bearded general stood before her, hat in hand, and openly admiring. When she came to the end of her speech, she reached up, rested the wreath for a moment on his bushy black crown of hair, and then put it in his hands. Now the crowd gave its greatest burst of applause. The two figures standing there, the tall brown soldier, and the beautiful woman, appealed to all that was gallant in their nature. It does not look as if there would be any social ostracism of Miss Harley, because she has turned working woman, said Winthrop. Cold and selfish emotions don't count at a time like this, said Raymond. It's the silent pressure of time and circumstance that she'll have to reckon with. Helen, her great deed performed, walked back, blushing somewhat, and hid herself among her companions. Then, the official ceremonies over, the occasion became informal, and soon generals and young women alike were surrounded by admirers, war and beauty having chances about equal in the competition. The good spirits of the crowd, moved by triumphant oratory, the beauty of the women and the blaze of uniforms, grew to such a pitch that no discordant note marred the cheerfulness of those gathered in the old courthouse. Prescott pressed into the crowd, but he found himself somewhat lost, or rather dimmed, amid the brilliant uniforms of the generals, who were as thick as corn in the field, and he despaired of securing more than a small part of Helen's attention. He had admired her beauty more than ever that day. Her timid dignity, when all critical eyes were upon her, impressed him. And yet he felt no jealousy now when he saw her surrounded and so sincerely flattered by others. He was surprised at himself, and a little angry, too, that it should be so. But search his mind as he would, he could not find the cause. At last he secured a word or two with her and passed on toward the porch. But looking back, saw the great cavalry leader, Wood, the mountaineer, talking to her, his tall figure towering a head over hers, his black eyes sparkling with a new fire, and lighting up his face like a blaze. His uniform was not too bright, and he was an imposing figure. Lion-like was the simile that occurred to Prescott. But he felt no pang. Again he was surprised at himself, and went on his way to the parlor, where the decorations were yet untouched, and gazed at the crowd, portions of which still lingered in the streets. His eyes unconsciously sought one figure, a figure that was not there, and he came to himself with a start when he realized the cause that had drawn him to the place. Displeased with himself, he rejoined his friends in the courtroom. "'Let's go into the hall and see the ladies and the great men,' said Talbot, and his comrades willingly went with him. It was indeed an animated scene in the building." the same high spirits and confident hope for the future that had marked the crowd prevailing here. Despite the winter without, it was warm in the rooms of the city hall, and Prescott, after a while, 
went back to the porch from which General Morgan had made his speech. Many of the enthusiastic throng of spectators still lingered, and small boys were sending off amateur fireworks. Going outside, he became once more one of the throng, simply because he had caught another glimpse of a face that interested and mystified him. It was the tall woman of the brown cloak, still watching everything with eyes that missed no detail. She annoyed Prescott. She had become an obsession like one of those little puzzles, the solution of which is of no importance except when one cannot obtain it. So he lingered in her neighborhood, taking care that she should not observe him, and he asked two or three persons concerning her identity. Nobody knew her. As the crowd, by and by, began to diminish, the woman turned away. The outlines of her figure were not disclosed, but her step was swinging and free, as that of one who had an abundance of health and vigor. She spoke to nobody, but seemed sure of her way. She went up Main Street, and Prescott, his curiosity increasing, followed at a distance. She did not look back, and he closed up gradually the gap between them, in order that he might not lose sight of her if she turned around a corner. This she did presently, but when he hastened and passed the corner too, he found himself face to face with the woman in brown. "'Well, sir,' she said sharply, "'Ah, I, excuse me, I did not see you. I turned the corner with such suddenness,' he said awkwardly, having an uneasy sense that he had been intrusive, yet anxious to solve the troublesome little mystery." You were following me, and for the second time today. He was silent, but his flushed face confirmed the truth of her accusation. For the moment that he stood near, he examined her features. He saw eyes so dark, he could not tell whether they were blue or black, eyelashes of unusual length, and a pale face remarkable for its strength. But it was youthful and finely cut, while a wisp of bronze hair at the edge of the hood showed a gleam of gold as the sunshine fell across it. "'I have heard that southern gentlemen were always courteous, as I told you once before,' she said. "'I thought I knew you, but made a mistake,' Prescott replied, it being the first thing that came into his mind. "'I fear that I have been rude, and I ask your pardon.' He lifted his hat and bowed humbly. "'You can show contrition by ceasing to follow me,' she said, "'and the sharp tone of her accusation was still in her voice. "'Prescott bowed again and turned away. "'He fully meant to keep his implied promise, "'but curiosity was too strong for him, "'and watching once more from a distance, "'he saw her go up Shaco Hill "'and into the Capitol through the wide-open doors. "'When he found it convenient presently "'to enter the Capitol in his turn,' He saw no trace of her, and disappointed and annoyed with himself, he went back to the city hall. Here Talbot was the first whom he met. "'Where have you been?' asked his friend. "'Following a woman.' "'Following a woman?' Talbot looked at Prescott in surprise. "'I didn't know you were that kind of man, Bob,' he said. "'But what luck?' "'None at all. I even failed to learn her name, where she lived, or anything else about her.' I'll tell you more this evening, because I want your advice. The reception ended presently, and the ladies, escorted by the young men, went to their homes. Talbot, Winthrop, and Raymond rejoined Prescott soon afterward near Shaco Hill. Now, tell us of the woman you were following, said Talbot. I don't think I shall, replied Prescott. I've changed my intention about it, 
at least for the present. The affair had clung to his mind, and the result of his second thought was a resolution to keep it to himself a while longer. He had formed a suspicion, but it might be wrong, and he would not willingly do injustice to anyone, least of all to a woman. Her face, when he saw her close at hand, looked pure and good, and now that he recalled it, he could remember distinctly that there had been in it a touch of reproach, and the reproach was for him. She had seemed to ask why he annoyed her. No, he would wait before speaking of her to his friends. Talbot regarded Prescott for a moment with an inquiring gaze, but said nothing more upon the subject. Prescott left his friends at the Capitol and spent the remainder of the day with his mother, who, on the plea of age, had avoided the reception and the festivities, although she now had many questions to ask. I hear that great enthusiasm was shown, and brilliant predictions were made, she said. It is quite true, he replied. The music, the speeches, and the high spirits, which you know are contagious in a crowd, have done good, I think, to the Southern cause. Did Morgan bring any new recruits for General Lee's army? Now, mother, replied Prescott, laughing a little, don't let your northern blood carry you too far. I know, too, that wars are not won by music and shouting, and days like today bring nothing substantial, merely an increase of hope. But after all, that is what produces substantial results. She smiled and did not answer, but went on quietly with her sewing. Prescott watched her for a while, and reflected what a beautiful woman his mother must have been, and was yet, for that matter. Mother, he said presently, you do not speak it aloud, but you cannot disguise from me the fact that you think it would be better for the North to win. She hesitated, but at last she said, I cannot rejoice whichever way this war ends. Are you not on the side of the South? All I can pray for is that it may end quickly. In your heart, mother, you have no doubt of the result. She made no reply, and Prescott did not pursue the subject.